You're listening to the Ayn Rand Institute Live podcast series. Judging Viewpoints by Their Fundamentals by Peter Schwartz. Good morning. You're all familiar with the political philosophy of anarchism. For this audience, I don't think I need to present the case against it. I'm sure most of you realize that it is a destructive idea, that it takes, it makes peaceful, cooperative life impossible, that it contradicts the principle of individual rights, that it is blind to the fact that government is the necessary vehicle for defending our rights. But what about the areas in which anarchism holds the correct or seemingly correct views? It is certainly wrong in holding that there should be no government at all, but isn't it right when it says that there should be no government involvement in education, in medical care, in housing, in transportation? As pro-capitalists, wouldn't we agree with those positions? Does that mean anarchism is partly bad and partly good? That we can agree with some elements of it and disagree with others? Even if it is mainly wrong, can we at least say that it is partly right? No. The anarchist is all wrong, across the board. His view that there should be no government involvement in, say, education, is false because the reason behind it is false. The why shapes the what. The why tells you the meaning of the what. In response to the question of whether government should have any role in education, the anarchist's no means something very different from the pro-capitalist's no. The anarchist means that there should be no government involvement in education for the same reason there should be no government whatsoever. And that belief is false, totally false. You should not maintain, as libertarians do, that you agree with 95% of what anarchists believe. You should not maintain that anarchists can be partial allies in the battle for freedom, that we can at least join with them in campaigning against uh, socialized medicine or against the Federal Reserve. Anarchism is not partly good and partly bad. It is all bad. What I will discuss here today are four points. Point one, which we're already in the middle of, the right answer for the wrong reason is the wrong answer. Two, how to identify the actual reason behind certain viewpoints. How to identify the actual reason behind certain viewpoints. Three, the means by which certain viewpoints masquerade their true nature how certain viewpoints masquerade their true nature. Four, the enormously harmful distortions and confusions generated by such masquerades. The harmful distortions generated by such masquerades. So to continue with point one, let's look at the ideology of environmentalism. Environmentalists oppose pipelines, power plants, dams, genetically modified foods, and they are wrong. 
These are all wrong positions. But here, too, the question is, are there some positions with which an objectivist would agree? For example, they are against the dumping of toxic products into lakes and rivers. Is that a correct position? No. It's true that we shouldn't dump toxins in, into our drinking water because our well-being is our overriding value. But the environmentalist has a different reason. When he says no toxins in our water, what he means is don't interfere with nature, don't disturb the natural waters with man-made products. And that is something false. That same false reason is behind every position the environmentalist takes. So while he has the seemingly right answer, it's for the wrong reason which makes it the wrong answer. Thus, like anarchism, environmentalism does not have some right positions and some wrong ones. They are all wrong. That's point one. Now, point two. We need to know what is the actual reason behind any of the particular positions taken by some broad viewpoint. But how? How do we come to know it? By asking a simple question. What unites all of its positions? That is, we look for a fundamental. Of all the positions that distinguish some viewpoint from other viewpoints, is there one thing present in all of them, one element that integrates them? Of all the ideas advocated by some viewpoint, is there one idea that encompasses them all and is thus fundamental to them? In examining environmentalism, for example, we see numerous positions that together make up the distinctive viewpoint. Don't cut down trees, you're disturbing the spotted owl. Don't produce new goods, recycle old ones. Don't drain swamps, they are the habitats of the dragonfly. Tear down dams, they interfere with the spawning of salmon. Don't engage in strip mining, it disfigures the earth. No genetically modified food, who knows what unforeseen consequences will come from such arrogant uh, interference with nature. So you have all these specific, narrower views that characterize environmentalism, and you ask what unites them? What do they have in common? What broader idea does each of them contain? Answer, the idea that human beings must not tamper with the intrinsic value of nature. In every instance in which there is a conflict between the needs of man and the so-called needs of nature, the needs of man are sacrificed. That is the fundamental. All the other narrower positions are derivatives of the fundamental. They are forms of the fundamental. They are all expressions of, manifestations of that one idea. The fundamental explains the narrower derivatives in that it explains what makes each of them a part of a single conceptual whole. In this case, a part of environmentalism. So when environmentalists oppose the dumping of untreated sewage into rivers, or the emission of toxic fumes into the air, it is not the requirements of man's well-being that is setting the standard. 
Rather, their fundamental imperative is to keep nature undisturbed, to protect nature from man. And since man's survival depends on reshaping nature to meet his needs, the environmentalist's imperative is man must be sacrificed for the sake of nature. That idea is present in each concrete position it advocates. Let's look at another example. Religion. There are certainly bad things inherent in religion, but are there some good things too? For instance, in answer to the question of whether one should engage in stealing or killing, the typical religionist says don't. Is that a right answer? Does religion have a correct view here? No. When the religionist says that stealing and killing are bad, bad means contrary to God's commands. To him, do not steal or kill means obey the Bible which tells you not to steal or kill. It does not mean don't violate someone's rights because logically your own life depends on the absolutism of rights. No. It means don't violate God's will because your life depends on the absolutism of God's commandments. The religionist has what may seem like the right answer, but for the wrong reason. So it's the wrong answer. And how do we know that this is the actual reason behind all of religion's positions? Again, by looking at the elements that distinguish religion from everything else and asking what underlying idea do they share? And that idea is that one must have faith in and must worship some supernatural deity. That is the fundamental. Everything a religion advocates is an expression, a form of that fundamental. From observe the Sabbath to don't take the name of God in vain to do not kill, they are all expressions of faith in and worship of God. They are demands that you surrender your own judgment to the will of God. They are demands that you refrain from stealing and killing, not because you grasp that doing so is, is rational, but because God says so. And if the religionist comes to believe that God wants him to commit murder, then he will readily do so. As indeed history is filled with bloody slaughters committed in the name of God. In judging a viewpoint, therefore, the fundamental is the standard by which you do so. In judging a viewpoint, the fundamental is the standard by which you do so. Every particular position taken by that viewpoint is an expression of, a derivative of, that fundamental. And you are implicitly endorsing that fundamental whenever you endorse one of its derivative positions. If you say, I don't steal because the Bible says so, you are implicitly endorsing the idea that one must obey whatever God commands. Now, of course, all this applies only to consistent viewpoints where there is a fundamental uni unifying idea. It applies when you have a conceptual classification, like each of the viewpoints we we've been discussing, that encompasses all the particular elements of that viewpoint. But if we're dealing with 
a smorgasbord of ideas like those of, say, the Republican Party. There is no fundamental. There is nothing integrating all the disparate positions. There is only a hash of views, perhaps some good and some bad. And to endorse the one is not necessarily to endorse the other. Only when there is a fundamental, a fundamental idea underlying some viewpoint, are you advancing that fundamental by embracing any of its particular positions. That's point two. To recap, to identify the reason behind any particular stand held by some viewpoint, and thus the true meaning of that stand, we must identify the broad fundamental of the overall viewpoint. Now we need to ask, why do people find it difficult to do this? And this will be point three. Why is it hard for many people to grasp that certain viewpoints, what certain viewpoints really stand for? In fact, people will often regard some viewpoint as standing for the very opposite of that fundamental of its true fundamental. For example, most people accept the premise that man must be subordinated, do not accept, excuse me, do not accept the premise that man must be subordinated to nature. They do not believe that it's evil to value air conditioning and gasoline-powered cars and 70-story skyscrapers. We can understand why they might mistakenly agree with the environmentalist position against dumping toxic chemicals because they're concerned about threats to human health. But why do such people accept environmentalist positions that clearly do not have that concern? Why do people accept the environmentalist restrictions on cutting down trees or clearing swamps or constructing hydroelectric dams? Why don't they see the obvious difference between protecting human lives by not contaminating our drinking water on the one hand and harming human lives by subordinating them to the needs of turtles and fish and bugs on the other hand. What technique is being used to deceive them? It's the technique of package dealing. Package dealing. Now a package deal, as you know, is a cognitive distortion. It's an attempt to take things that are essentially different and treat them as similar. It's an attempt to make a single conceptual unit out of elements that are actually opposites. And not simply to unite them, but to disguise what they really are and to prevent you from properly identifying them. Let's see how this operates here. The straightforward way to advocate environmentalism would be to openly state its basic premise. Nature should be protected against human encroachment because there is an intrinsic value in undisturbed nature, even at the expense of man's well-being. Whether the issue is dumping toxins into a lake or building a hydroelectric dam, the principle is the same. Man, the environmentalist principle. Man should not intrude upon nature. But that is not how environmentalists present their case. Instead, they deliberately cloud the issue. Are you dumping raw sewage into drinking water? You're harming the environment. Are you using asbestos or lead-based paint? You're harming the environment. And what does environment mean? 
environment, the concept, is a relational one. It refers to the environment of someone, affecting that someone or something. The proper meaning of your environment is your surroundings that affect your life. So naturally, people want to protect their own environment. But then a package deal is concocted. First, as we've seen, the category of actions harmful to people is classified as harmful to the environment. Then, the term environment is surreptitiously changed to refer to nature as such. Nature divorced from any relationship to man. Disturbing or, quote, harming nature is now bad. Gradually, people lose the distinction between poisoning their drinking water, which obviously is harmful to them, and building dams, which is beneficial to them. The environmentalist has created a package deal whereby these two opposite activities are taken as essentially similar. The idea of changes that harm human beings is replaced by the idea of changes to nature as such. So if we should refrain from poisoning our drinking water, we should likewise refrain from disturbing the dragonfly. It's all one big fuzzy package. It's all under the nebulous heading of protecting the environment. This deliberately induced confusion makes it hard to grasp the meaning of environmentalism. It's hard to identify the wrong reason behind the environmentalists' opposition to polluted water or air because they have blurred the distinction between the right reason and the wrong reason. They have blurred the distinction between protecting man and, quote, protecting nature, leaving only one amorphous, undefined package. The essential problem caused by package deals is the elimination of a certain conceptual category. Here, the environmentalists have, in effect, eliminated the category of harm to man or benefit to man when it comes to human interactions with nature. Are you constructing a pipeline that disturbs the activities of the black-footed ferret? Are you building a dam that interferes with the natural flow of a river? Do you think these are desirable activities because they benefit you? No, the environmentalist says, they are no different from dumping toxic material into your drinking water because they all harm the environment and are therefore bad. Now, environmentalists will still occasionally feel a need to present scientific data, albeit often spurious, purporting to show the harm to man from some interference with nature. But more often, such presentations are unnecessary. Now the simple assertion that the natural order is being disrupted by human activity, perhaps with some vague allusions to unknown consequences, is usually enough to get people to agree that the activity should stop. This same package dealing is devised for anarchism. Not the original anarchist versions, which were basically anti-capitalist and Marxist. Those versions were wrong, but not necessarily package deals. The package deal comes from the modern, libertarian version of anarchism, or semi-anarchism. This is the version that seeks to attract the pro-capitalist. It's the version that often does not explicitly embrace full anarchism 
and may even nominally accept the existence of government, but sees no fundamental disagreement with anarchism. It's the version that condemns many legitimate, legitimate government activities, legitimate uses of force, particularly military force, by means of a package deal. You are for capitalism, the libertarian says. You're against government involvement in the economy, he says. So you think, quote, interventionism is bad. Well, if the government takes military action against, say, Iran or North Korea, that's interventionism too, isn't it? It's our government interfering in people's lives against their will, isn't it? So if interventionism is bad when it comes to medical care or education, so is interventionism in foreign policy. The libertarian thus tries to obscure the distinction between initiating force against the innocent, as when government dictates the terms under which we can obtain medical care or education, and using force to retaliate against those who threaten us, as with Iran or North Korea. The libertarian tries to erase the clear difference between using force to violate individual rights and using force to defend rights. It's all one big fuzzy package, he says, called, quote, interventionism. Now let's look at how religion does the same thing. Again, the straightforward way to present the religionist's view would be for him to claim man's puny mind cannot discover the truth, we cannot know right from wrong, we must abandon reason and rely on a supernatural deity to guide us. That would be the straightforward approach. But that's not what the typical religionist does. Instead, he obfuscates. He creates a package deal. He tells people, you know, you know that it's wrong to steal and kill, don't you? You know that you should be kind to your neighbor, don't you? It makes sense, doesn't it, that we should follow moral principles rather than just do whatever we happen to feel like doing? Well, that's what the Bible is telling you. It's telling you what you know is right. So you're in agreement with the Bible. God just wants you to do what is best for you. In reality, there is obviously an essential difference between deciding something is right by your own independent judgment and deciding it because the Bible commands it. The religionist muddles the difference. It's all the same, he says. And if those two opposites are the same, then there is likewise no difference between choosing not to steal and choosing to observe the Sabbath or to engage in daily prayer to God. It's all just doing what is right for you, which God has shown you is what he wants. That is how religion is seen by many people as a result of this package deal. I've said that the kind of viewpoints I'm discussing are not mixtures of good and bad, but are all bad, categorically bad. But you might ask, aren't there religious people who are genuinely honest and truthful? Aren't there environmentalists who really do want to safeguard man's well-being? Yes, there are. But only to the extent that they don't take their ideas seriously. The religionists who won't lie or cheat or steal, 
behaves that way because he's decided by his own judgment that honesty is the right way to live. But if he truly embraced religion, he would readily steal and kill if he believed God wanted him to. Similarly, if a follower of environmentalism values human welfare, he does so not because of his ideology, but in spite of it. Man's entire survival depends on reshaping nature to fulfill his needs. That's how we live and progress. But if the environmentalist believes there is an intrinsic value to untouched nature, then man's well-being cannot be a value. So to recap, one, the right answer for the wrong reason is the wrong answer. Two, the way to determine the actual reason behind some viewpoint is to find the fundamental, the broad idea that is shared by all the narrower positions advocated by that viewpoint. Three, certain viewpoints try to disguise their fundamentals by means of package deals. And now we're up to point four, the cognitive distortions resulting from this whole devious process. Now we've already looked at some of these distortions. What I want to do here is to flesh out this last point more fully. I want to offer another example, a case study which we'll analyze at length. I want to look at how, because people started with the right answer for the wrong reason, how an insidious idea about America has been injected into the culture. And I mean the idea that this is a country suffering from systemic institutionalized racism. What's the basis for that sweeping accusation? One significant institution the, the accusers point to is the police. And a major event they cite, one that uh, propelled the Black Lives Matter movement into national prominence, is the case of Michael Brown in Ferguson, Missouri. In August of 2014, Michael Brown, a black man, was shot and killed by a white police officer, Darren Wilson. This generated many days of protests across the country. The event was portrayed as a malicious, racially motivated murder, the murder of an innocent, unarmed 18-year-old. It was reported that Brown had had his hands raised, pleading, don't shoot, when he was cold-bloodedly killed. In fact, the words, hands up, don't shoot, became a popular hashtag, signifying police indifference to black lives. Brown's killing, his defenders asserted, was evidence of widespread racism within police departments. And they were demanding that the officer responsible be tried for murder. Okay. Now, what were the actual facts? Michael Brown had stolen several packages of cigars from a store. A police radio dispatch was issued with Brown's description. Police officer Wilson heard it, saw Brown walking down the street, holding the cigars, and pulled his car over to block Brown's path. Brown reached into the vehicle through the open driver's window and punched and grabbed the officer. Wilson, the officer, responded by trying to draw his gun. Brown then tried to grab the weapon. They struggled, and the policeman fired, hitting Brown in the hand. Brown started to run. Wilson chased him. 
Brown, who was six feet four inches tall and weighing 290 pounds, then turned around and charged toward Wilson, whereupon Wilson, fearing for his safety, shot and killed Brown. Brown was not shot in the back. There were no entry wounds in his back. Where am I getting this information from? From exhaustive investigations conducted by several agencies in the Obama administration, namely the Justice Department's Civil Rights Division, the U.S. Attorney's Office for the District of Missouri, and the FBI, along with St. Louis County Police Department detectives and St. Louis prosecutors. They all examined the physical evidence at the crime scene, the medical reports, including an independent autopsy performed by the Defense Department, audio and video recordings made of the event, local cell phone data, and the police officer's personal records. The local grand jury decided, after looking at all this, that there was no basis for any indictment. And the Justice Department concluded, quote, the evidence does not support charging a violation of federal law. It is not appropriate to present this matter to a federal grand jury for indictment, and it should therefore be closed without prosecution, close quote. Despite these facts, the case was widely cited as evidence that our police departments are infected with racism. And that accusation continues. For example, in 2019, Kamala Harris, then still a senator, described the shooting as a murder, as did Senator Elizabeth Warren, also in 2019, who declared in a public tweet that, quote, Michael Brown was murdered by a white police officer in Ferguson, Missouri. Michael was unarmed, yet he was shot six times, unquote. Why don't the facts matter? Let's consider another well-known case, that of Breonna Taylor, a black woman who was killed by a white policeman in Louisville, Kentucky in March of 2020. A contingent of police officers broke down the door to her apartment shortly after midnight and subsequently shot her to death. This too fueled na uh, nationwide demonstrations about racism in our country, particularly by the police. But let's look at what actually happened there. The police had a warrant to, search and to enter and search the apartment to look for illegal drugs. They knocked several times and announced themselves as police. Receiving no answer, they broke into the room and were met with gunshots from Brianna Taylor's boyfriend who was there with her. One of the officers was hit by a bullet. The police returned fire and Brianna Taylor was shot and killed. The boyfriend has claimed that he did not hear the police identify themselves and that he fired his gun thinking they were criminal intruders. A grand jury looked into it and decided the evidence supported the police's contention that they shot in self-defense. The verdict exonerated the officer who shot Taylor, although another officer was indicted for recklessly endangering next-door neighbors, but at a subsequent jury trial, he too was exonerated. So if you believe the police, then the shooting was completely justified. But maybe you choose not to believe that they announced themselves as police. Now, I think you'd have no valid basis for not believing them. After all, an unwillingness to identify themselves as police when entering the apartment would be a senseless decision that only endangered their own lives. 
Still, if you don't want to believe them, then this was a case where the boyfriend mistakenly fired at unknown intruders with the police understandably firing back. How is this conceivably a case of, quote, cold-blooded murder, as described by the Black Lives Matter organization? A case in which Breonna Taylor died, quote, at the hands of police brutality, systemic racism, and white supremacy, close quote. Let's examine one final incident, the killing of George Floyd in May of 2020. This was a watershed event, one that radically changed the outlook of this country on issues pertaining to race. Floyd, a black man, was under arrest for using counterfeit currency. He was handcuffed and placed on the ground by a white policeman, Derek Chauvin, who restrained him by putting his knee on Floyd's neck for about nine minutes, leading to Floyd's death. Videotapes of this incident sparked demonstrations across the country, indeed across the world. Here was undeniable proof, the protesters declared, of callous racism by the police. In a jury trial, Chauvin was convicted of murder and sentenced to prison. Now, what critical fact was, and still is, ignored about this case? The fact that there was no evidence that racism was involved. Even at the trial, the prosecutors, despite having every incentive to do so, presented not one piece of evidence that the police officer was motivated by any prejudice toward blacks. Nothing in the officer's history indicated any racism on his part. No evidence was offered to suggest that the officer would not have acted the same toward a white suspect. Yet this case has become a lasting symbol of America's racism. Why? Then there were claims of racism based on statistical data about the police. For instance, as a percentage of the US population, blacks are fatally shot by police at more than twice the rate of whites. This, it is repeatedly asserted, reveals widespread racial bias by police. However, since it is the job of the police to shoot at criminals, isn't it relevant to note that proportionately more violent crime, about almost three times more, is committed by blacks than by whites? And isn't it relevant to ask what percent of extremely threatening criminals, namely those who have killed a police officer, are black versus white? And there, as a percentage of the population, almost four times as many blacks as whites are in that category. Isn't this, rather than uh, racial bias, a more reasonable explanation for why blacks are more likely to be shot by police? But such facts don't matter to those who accuse America of racism. Why? Because when it comes to the evil of racism, these accusers offer the right answers for the wrong reason. Racism is the view that an individual's character and abilities are to be judged by his race. It's the view that you are the product not of your volitional choices, but of your racial ancestry. It's the collectivist notion that your essential identity is determined by your unchosen membership in some group, here a racial group. 
If one believes in justice, therefore, racism is obviously a horribly false view. If one believes in justice, a person's race is irrelevant in any significant area of life. And the right way to deal with people is to be colorblind when it comes to race. But the accusers have a very different conception of racism. When the movie industry gives out its Oscar awards, if no black actors are nominated one year, the Academy is accused of racism. And the award system is changed so that race is taken into account. When museums display too many works by white artists, the curators are accused of racism and the selection process is changed so that race is taken into account. When not enough blacks are admitted to the top universities, the administrators are accused of racism and the standards are changed so that an applicant's race is taken into account. What is the fundamental behind all this? It's certainly not justice that the advocates of this viewpoint are seeking, it's something else. Their basic premise is that whenever blacks fail, to get something that whites have, regardless of the cause, affirmative action must be taken to reverse the situation. What they, firm, what they fundamentally believe in then is not justice, but egalitarianism, a racial egalitarianism. It's the idea that all races, regardless of any individual's merit, are entitled to the same conditions and the same rewards. On this view, and Black Lives Matter is its best known representative, racism exists whenever blacks don't get that which they want and which whites have. An article in the Atlantic magazine written by a Columbia University professor defends this meaning of racism. Quote, the focus of the definition, the definition of racism, is less on attitudes than results. The societal disparities between white people and others are themselves referred to as racism. For example, many people would say that the fact that on average black students do not perform as highly on standardized tests as white students means that the tests are racist in that they disadvantage black students. The term racism is often applied even if white bias is not or is no longer the cause of the disparities, unquote. So the cause of any disparity is ignored. It doesn't matter if a white student got a higher grade on a test because he deserved it. It doesn't matter if a white actor deserved an Oscar more than a black actor. It doesn't matter if a black man is killed by a white policeman, uh, th that the black man who was killed by a white policeman deserved to be shot. Doesn't matter. To the racial egalitarian, what you deserve is irrelevant. What is relevant is only skin color. And any disparity between what black people have and what white people have, including encounters with the police, constitutes racism and must be eliminated. Are these egalitarians opposed to actual racism? No. If an innocent black person is maliciously shot by a bigoted white police officer, they will condemn it, but not for the right reason. They will say the shooting is wrong not because the victim was being judged by his skin color and did not deserve to be shot. Rather, they believe it's wrong because proportionately more blacks than whites are being shot 
by police, irrespective of what any individual deserves. So they have the right answer for the wrong reason, which is the wrong answer. And since the why shapes the what, the entire meaning of racism is perverted. On this view, racism means the refusal to embrace egalitarianism. Racism is the refusal to give up the so-called privileges possessed by the dominant majority, by the oppressive racial class. If so, only whites can be guilty of racial discrimination. It cannot be committed by blacks against whites, that is. It cannot be committed by the oppressed minority against the oppressor majority. So a hospital in Boston, for example, decides that its specialty cardiac units must give priority admission to blacks over whites. The mayor of Chicago announces a press conference which white journalists are not permitted to attend. A public school in Colorado creates playground nights for its students, but only for blacks. CBS announces that at least 40% of its writers must be non-white. All of this is blatant racism, but it is condoned in the name of anti-racism. Discrimination against whites is condoned because they are the oppressors. They are not, they are opposed to egalitarianism. To the egalitarians, if you give individuals strictly what they deserve, whether it's an Oscar or an admission to university, you are failing to distribute equal rewards according to race, and you are guilty of racism. Which means that judging people strictly by merit is racist, which means that taking a colorblind approach is racist, which means it is racist to ignore race. This is what leads to the accusation that America is a racist country. And why are people taken in by this? After all, most people do not believe in this kind of egalitarianism. They don't believe in equalizing Oscar awards or test scores or prison sentences by race. What deceives people is a package deal, a package deal that merges the principle of egalitarianism with the principle of justice, a package deal in which the difference between these two principles is erased. We need, quote, equality, the racial egalitarians tell us. When actual racism occurs, as, say, when, when um, blacks are denied jobs that are given to less qualified whites, it's wrong, they say, because that's unequal treatment. And when racism does not occur, as when more Oscars are given to whites because their performances were better, that, too, is supposedly unequal treatment and therefore racist. In the name of the package deal called equality, everything from jobs to Oscar awards must be doled out proportionately by race. The case of a black person who loses out because of his race is packaged together with the case of a black person who loses out because his competitor is more qualified. Both, we are told, constitute racism because both constitute, quote, inequality. That has become the new meaning of racism. But what if we start with the proper meaning of racism?
by that proper meaning, is there then evidence of systemic racism in America? Well, yes. If you look at all the programs of so-called reverse racism, of quotas, of affirmative action, of preferential treatment for blacks, that certainly represents systemic racism. But the accusation being leveled against this country is about anti-black racism. The claim is that white supremacy is firmly institutionalized in America. Is there any validity to that charge? No. All the institutions, the significant sources of cultural influence in this country repudiate white supremacy. Any public statement someone makes that even hints at white supremacy is everywhere denounced. The universities, could you be invited on any campus to espouse white supremacy? The media, could you appear on any talk show, even on Fox, and say that blacks are an inferior race without instant condemnation? The courts, will any judge not rule that segregation against blacks is illegal? Congress, could any member introduce a law granting special privileges to whites without being censured? Publishing. Will any reputable publisher issue a book defending white supremacy? Business. Is there a corporation of any size that does not have a diversity department and diversity training? The arts. Will any gallery or museum display works that portray blacks as inferior? Will any theater company stage a play? Will any movie house show a film praising Jim Crow laws? Obviously, no. Yes, there are still rednecks who hate blacks. Yes, there are still fringe groups that meet in basements to preach the tenets of white supremacy. But these are not cultural institutions. They have little moral influence. They are overwhelmingly denounced by the institutions that do have the influence to implement the moral norms in our society. What about our history? Our history of slavery, of segregation, of Jim Crow laws. Isn't all that a sign of institutionalized racism? No, exactly the opposite. True, there was slavery in America at the start, as there was virtually everywhere in the world at the time. But what was unique about America was its founding document that established the radical principle that all are created equal and that everyone has the inalienable right to life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. That principle was contradicted by slavery, but it led almost 100 years later to the Civil War, in which hundreds of thousands of Union soldiers died to defeat the defenders of slavery and to make possible the recognition of rights for blacks, no less than for whites. A country can offer no greater repudiation of the evil of slavery than to go to war to eliminate it. And yes, it's true, in the decades following the war, there was still a great deal of racism, of institutionalized racism, such as the Jim Crow laws mandating racial segregation. But those two were gradually done away with again as evidence of this country's disagreement with those laws and its gradual acceptance of the principle of rights for all. And what has been the overall direction of change in the status of blacks since then? A continuous decline in racial discrimination against them. 
More blacks have become not only police officers, but chiefs of police. More blacks have become mayors and governors and members of Congress. A black man was elected president twice. Is that reconcilable with institutionalized racism? More blacks are entering and graduating from college. More blacks have become corporate executives. Laws against miscegenation were declared unconstitutional. And interracial marriages keep increasing. Areas that had been closed, completely closed to blacks, from playing Major League Baseball to singing at the top opera houses, have completely opened. How is all this compatible with an institutionalized prejudice toward blacks? And this is a natural, predictable process in a free or even semi-free country. Racism is the product of ignorance and irrationality. Attributes that in a free society lose out to intelligence and to reason. In a capitalist system, people gradually see that blacks are indeed capable of whatever whites are. And those who nonetheless cling to their prejudices find, out, find that they suffer the consequences of their irrationality. They are outcompeted by the people who choose to hire or buy from or sell to black workers, black suppliers, black customers. Under freedom, the rational prevails over the irrational. But what about the disparities that still exist? Why is average black income lower than that of whites? Why is um, the average black crime rate higher? Is this because of systemic racism on the part of the white majority? There, too, the answer is no. Leaving aside other cultural factors that affect such matters, the main cause of these kinds of disparities is philosophical. Ever since the worst of the welfare state took hold, largely from the 1960s onward, blacks have been taught an offshoot of altruism, the doctrine of victimization. They are told that they don't have to study hard in school, they don't have to learn a skill, they don't have to pursue a career, they don't have to plan for their future. They are not responsible for their own lives. If they choose to live off welfare checks or to join street gangs, they are not to be blamed. It's the oppressive white majority that is at fault. There's a, a nonprofit organization called KIPP, the Knowledge is Power program. It's a network of college preparatory schools designed specifically to improve the educational opportunities for low-income families. Part of its national slogan is or was, work hard. Recently, the organization announced that it is retiring that slogan. Why? Because, quote, it diminishes the significant effort required to dismantle systemic racism and supports the illusion of meritocracy, close quote. Now, obviously, to the extent that blacks accept this doctrine, to the extent that they regard merit as an illusion, they will lag behind the rest of society. They will lag behind in academic test scores, in employment, in accumulating wealth, in staying out of prison. They will suffer the inevitable consequences of the victimization theory. The movement represented by Black Lives Matter does not seek to eradicate racism. 
It does not care whether there is objective evidence in any instance of actual racism. It does not care about what someone deserves, about whether a black person deserves to be admitted to some university or deserves to be arrested by the police. Its purpose is only to establish a system of egalitarianism. And its motive is to smear achievement, to make those who succeed by their own effort feel guilty, to transform their genuine accomplishments into, quote, white privilege for which they must atone. The motive is to smear a system of merit, that is, a system of justice, as racism. The motive is to smear individualism as racism, to smear capitalism as racism. That's the real target of the accusations about racism in America. That is the end result of a campaign that claims to condemn racism but offers the right answer, for the, the seemingly right answer, for the wrong reason. Which brings us back to where we started. Viewpoints that appear to have some good and some bad in them must be judged according to their fundamentals. If the fundamental is wrong, all the derivatives are wrong. So if you want to reduce the size of government, the way to do so is not by allying with anarchists or libertarian anarchists. If you want to deal with the problem of, with problem of smog, which could be a real problem, the way to do so is not by allying with environmentalists. If you want to fight against racism, the way to do so is not by allying with organizations like Black Lives Matter. So that's how to judge viewpoints. What about how to communicate your judgment to others? What does that require? In her attack on environmentalism, Ayn Rand wrote, quote, anyone over 30 years of age today give a silent thank you to the nearest grimiest, sootiest smokestacks you can find, unquote. Now, isn't soot or grime unhealthy? Why criticize environmentalists for being opposed to it? Because they aren't opposed to it, because Ayn Rand is focused on the fundamental. They are against smokestacks only because they are against industrialization, the ultimate reshaping of nature for man's benefit. In Atlas Shrugged, John Galt talks about altruism, and he calls it a morality of death. Now, he doesn't say, well, altruism is bad, but it has some acceptable elements, such as helping out your neighbor if his house happens to burn down. No, he gets to its fundamental. It's a morality that contradicts the requirements of human life. That is how you should describe such viewpoints whether it's in a conversation, or in a lecture, or in a book, confront their fundamentals. Obviously, you shouldn't assert your evaluations without fully proving them, and you shouldn't be gratuitously belligerent, but don't be reluctant to explicitly name and challenge the root ideas you've determined are false. Don't be hesitant to state that environmentalism is an assault on production and progress, or that the Black Lives Matter movement is an assault on justice and on capitalism, or that religion is an assault on reason and on freedom. Will such directness alienate your audience? It might. 
It might alienate those who recoil from addressing issues in terms of absolutes. It might alienate those whose motto in life is, can't we all just get along? But your approach will certainly galvanize any potential ally. It will grab the interest of any individual who is receptive to rational, uncompromising principles, which is exactly the type of person, the type of mind you want to reach. Remember, your purpose is not simply polemics. Your crucial values are increasingly coming under attack today by certain viewpoints in the culture. In self-defense, you need to express your disagreement. You particularly need to convey your moral outrage, your outrage at the injustices endorsed by those viewpoints. This is how you uphold your values. So be assertive, be unyielding, challenge their fundamentals. It's the only way to help create a world in which your values can ultimately prevail. Thank you. Hello. Uh, I'd like to start with a question online. I'm sorry, say that again? I'd like to start with a question online. Okay. Um, if the religionist's view that murder is wrong is not correct, since he holds it for the wrong reasons, what percentage of Americans have the correct view for why murder is wrong, and is it possible to have the correct view of murder without objectivism? Uh, I think it's 41% was the latest published figure on that. I have no idea what percent of people have the right view, but uh, certainly there are many people who do have the right view. The, the, the world or this country does not consist of ardent fanatical religionists. Uh, as I said, they're taken in, many people are taken in by religion, particularly by its package deal, but uh, this is still essentially a secular country. So I think most people have the right view for what, why murder is wrong. Now you ask, can, can you have the correct view without objectivism? Yes, but not entirely. In other words, you can understand that people have rights, including the right to live and not to be killed, and that you should refrain from engaging in murder, and that by doing so, you protect your own right to your own life. Most people understand that. They don't understand the full validation of it. They're open to challenge. They're open to criticism. So they're not able to fully validate it, but the fact that you cannot fully validate it does not mean that you're holding it for the wrong reason. They are holding it for the right reason, they just don't understand it fully. That's a big difference. Yes. Is it ever proper to ally yourself in a political context with people whose fundamentals you disagree with, but you, in a narrow political context, you share the same goal? I'm thinking, uh, for example, of ab abortion. You mean uh, allying with whom on abortion? With people on the left. Well, it depends with which, with which people on the left. If you're allying uh, with the Communist Party in order to fight abortion? No, that, that's 
self-defeating. That's um, trying to get a derivative by contradicting its fundamental. But, but there are many uh, people on the left who are not communists. Uh, people, you, you take a number of people on the, in the Democratic Party uh, who have mixed premises, and most, almost everybody has mixed premises. Uh, it's only, and I stress this in the talk, it's only when you're faced with a consistent ideology, like the Communist Party, for example, that it's wrong to endorse any of its derivative positions because by doing so you endorse the fundamental. But where you have a mixed view, you have a smorgasbord, uh, like the Republican Party, even the Democratic Party, it's perfectly okay to vote for a Democratic Party on occasion, depending on who the candidate is, because they don't have a single consistent overriding uh, philosophy that can be traced to a single fundamental. That's the distinction. If there is a fundamental, as with the Communist Party, don't uh, ally with them. If there isn't a single fundamental underlying them, then it depends on this particular issue. Thank you. Hi, so I had two really small questions. Um, one of them is, I guess I'm struggling to justify, like I understand why it's okay for a government to go attack a foreign country in the reason of self-defense, but how can it be moral to kill innocent civilians in that attack? Like why is that moral? Like in a it, case I, of- I, understand. I get the question, I get the question. Uh, it's moral for this reason. Any deaths of, let's, uh, let me start a, a step further back. Let's accept your premise that there are genuinely innocent people in that country. And, and certainly, you know, babies and children would be innocent. And there are innocent adults too. So there are innocent people that are being killed by the need to defend ourselves against attack from some country. The entire responsibility for those deaths lies with the aggressor country. It lies with a country that is making it necessary for us to engage in military action, which will happen to kill innocent people because they launched a threat against us. We should feel no moral responsibility whatsoever. Oh, okay, okay that makes sense. And um, my other one I is... I hope so. <laughs> <laughs> A common argument I hear in terms of like the colorblind approach to dealing with, you know, people of color is when you do that, it's it's like black erasure of like the history that black people have been through. When you treat them like they're like any other person, you ignore the fact that they have, you know, suffered through racism for a long time. And I don't know what. But they are like any other person, and many people have suffered various injustices. The the. That argument that you're presenting is exactly what's wrong with the, the, the current view of racism. To say that you've got to identify people by their race because uh, 200 years ago their great-great-great-great-great-great-grandfathers were slaves is to say that your identity rests in your blood, your identity is in your ancestry. And that's, that, that is the essence of racism. That's the, the, the collectivist element of racism. It's the deterministic aspect of racism. And it's what makes racism evil. That's precisely the aspect that you have to repudiate. People are individuals. 
you, your back, you may have had tragedy in your background. Your ancestors may have had tragedy. That does not entitle you to inflict injustices upon other people who didn't suffer that tragedy. You are to be judged by your actions and your volitional choices. Thank you. Okay. Hi. Um, in the context of racism, would you say that there's any validity to, to the claim that, uh, uh, for example, racism might exist subconsciously and that you need to root that out for, like, that that's the issue that's uh, caused? No, that's, that's such a ridiculous issue. They, they, in other words, what they, they people say, well, okay, we can't prove that there's racism occurring here. We can't prove that this person is, is acting that a white person is acting that way towards a black person because of racism. We can't prove that the, uh, this guy didn't, this black actor didn't win an Oscar because of, we can't prove it, but we all know subconsciously everybody, all white people are racist, therefore everything that happens to black people is the result of racism. That's such an arbitrary non-irrational approach. You need evidence for whatever claim you're asserting. If you're asserting somebody is racist, point it out, and then if you have evidence, fine, you should, you, that, that action should be taken to eliminate that. But they're using this ploy exactly because they don't have evidence and they don't want to have evidence. They don't need evidence of racism. Their claim is whites are inherently oppressing blacks, therefore any disparity means We've got to give preferential treatment to blacks. Uh, the, the, this subconscious pseudo-explanation is just a means of avoiding the need to present objective evidence of racism in order to justify an accusation of racism. Okay, thanks. This next question uh, is not from online, but it's mine personally. I think we'll take that. Thank you. Um, so when considering crime rates uh, relating to race, uh, shouldn't we keep two things in mind? One, uh, it may be that, uh, for example, it's not objective to use these statistics because there might be a reason to think that the bias itself may influence the results. For example, it may be that police patrol the black areas more um, and that perhaps uh, parole officers are more are harsher on, their, uh, on the black parolees. And um, the second thing would be uh, if even having done that, like there's still a, a crime disparity, um, what role does drug criminalization play since it's very well a source of all of these crimes or most of them? And isn't that an injustice that's ultimately the source of this crime disparity? All right, let me start with the first part. Um, you, you say you think that the Statistics themselves may be biased because people, excuse me, because police will more frequently patrol black neighborhoods than other neighborhoods. Well, the point is they, they may very well do that, but there's a valid reason for that. If there's more crime there, why shouldn't they patrol there more? Now, the, you can then add, well, why is there more crime? And I think I gave the explanation for that, which is not a, a, a racial racially based explanation. And if you look at the progression of these kinds of things over time, the black crime rate and, and, and um, um, black poverty rate also, to a certain extent, uh, 
has gotten worse since the uh, 60s, since the welfare state was, was implemented. Um, there was, for many decades before uh, the 60s, the statistics for blacks were improving in terms of income and also in terms of crime, in terms of out of wedlock births, things like that. And it became much worse afterwards uh, because, as I say, the welfare state, which inculcates dependency and fosters this idea or reinforces this idea of victimization. Um, so you cannot use the fact that police patrol more in black areas as evidence of bias because the reason they do that is because there's more crime there. And you say, um, what was the second half of the question? Um, what was the second question? Drugs. Drugs, yes, I'm sorry, thank you. Drugs. Um, you know that I'm against all drug laws. Any drug should be illegal, should be made legal. There, there's no valid rational reason for prohibiting drugs, any drugs, whether it's, it's uh, marijuana or cocaine, all of them should be legal. But I don't see how that is a basis for, uh, for explaining or, or explaining the claims of racism. It's true, I think, that more blacks are prosecuted under drug laws than whites, proportionately, but more blacks are prosecuted under robbery laws and under murder laws than whites are. So why blacks choose to engage in illegal drugs more than whites do, I don't know if it's true, I don't know if it's true or not, but if it's true, you know, give me an explanation, but regardless, if more blacks engage in what is an illegal activity, obviously more of them will be arrested and tried and imprisoned. So that, that is not racism. That's, the source of that is the bad laws, not racism. Yes. Uh, thank you for the uh, powerful talk. Thank you. Uh, I uh, like the restatement of that uh, title of your uh, speech, uh, judging uh, uh, the viewpoint by the fundamentals, uh, reformulating it uh, as you did. Uh, uh, right answer for the wrong reason is not a right answer, right. Uh, and I will I will very much use it. And I have recently sort of developed a quick analogy. I'd like to uh, uh, just your comment on it. I was. Uh, uh, approached by um, someone who sort of looks like a, an ally, you know, we were uh, discussing capitalism and he, he, he knows about my objectivist uh, background, he, he, you know, he knows next to nothing about objectivism and he sort of argued from, from Kantian positions and phenomenology and so, so forth. And, and he said, well, you know, why, why, why do you make such a big deal out of this? You know, we all are sort of, uh, we both defend capitalism and freedom and and I told him, no, no, you know, we, we fundamentally oppose each other. And I gave him this analogy. You know, we have a, you know, mathematic sort of, you know, uh, statement, four plus four plus two equals 10, right? You're, you're saying, you know, it equals 10. And I'm saying it equals 10. But what you're saying is four plus four equals five, and five plus two equals 10. What I'm saying is, Four plus four equals eight. Eight plus two equals ten. So are these two tens, you know, same answer? No, they're not. And the point is not that you are saying this and I'm saying uh, this. The, the point is uh, that we are saying completely different things. So yes. they're not, you know, the same answer. The ten, the cognitive status of ten is not the same, right? Yes, I agree. That, that's, a, that's a good analogy. And just 
to restate the distinction. When you have a disagreement with a person in fundamental terms, as is the case with your numbers, with the math, then what you mean by it is different from what he means by it. That's the issue. That's why the right answer for the wrong reason is the wrong answer. Yes, go ahead. Could you contrast your views uh, you've laid out today um, with the uh, values up approach that- the, Which uh, approach? The values up approach that um, I've heard uh, the Objective Standard Institute uh, take with regard to spreading cultural change, if there are contrasts. It looks like you're not aware of it. I have no idea of it, and I have no interest in, in their views anyway. <laughs> There's uh, certain terminology that are package deals, and they fundamentally you know, short-circuit conversations. Uh, during your talk, you used one of those terms and you said this so-called reverse racism, and I think that's the probably- so-called what? So-called reverse, reverse yes. racism. Yes. I think your reasoning for that probably is similar to mine, that that is a package deal. The term reverse racism is a package deal because it presumes that there's a different value from one life to another or that there's a different value uh, between racism by a black person against a white versus a white versus a black and I have I've pointed that out in some conversations and had some success with it I uh, just wonder if you could speak to the the importance of defining your terms fundamentally in those kind of conversations well there's no question that it's important to define your terms uh, that's part of what a package deal interferes with it, it, it prevents a correct definition gives a vague, meaningless, but um, usable, a, 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 a definition that's usable, that's wrongly usable uh, for various terms. So it's, it's crucial to have correct definitions for all your terms and to present them. Uh, with respect to reverse racism, uh, that's not quite a package deal. Um, the, people use reverse racism, that is, people who are opposed to it, like affirmative action and so forth, people who are opposed to call it reverse racism, to stress the idea that this too is racism, it's just racism of blacks against whites rather than whites against blacks. So technically, you're right, reverse racism there's, is racism. Right. It's an there's, no, there's not different types, it's, 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 let's put it this way. Fundamentally, there's no difference between blacks discriminating against whites or whites discriminating against blacks, they both fall exactly equally under the heading of racism. But in order to combat all of these affirmative action programs, people have coined the word reverse racism, racism to stress the idea that this is racism, it's just a different type. So if you mean that it's racism a different type, that's perfectly okay. Um, you know, by the way, that the... Um, the egalitarians like Black Lives Matter and so forth are very much opposed to the whole use of the term reverse racism. They think this is also a means by which uh, the white majority oppresses the black minority by calling things reverse racism. They reject that idea entirely. So the important thing is to just, with reverse racism is to say this is exactly racism just of a slightly different type, but fundamentally the same concept encompasses them both. Okay? But isn't it, I mean, to, to differentiate that way, it's not, how is that helpful? 
I mean, well, it, helpful. To, the, the the point is, we have all of these pro we have all of these affirmative action programs, which particularly ones which the government has instituted, which are being done in the name of fighting racism. And you're, we're objecting and saying, no, you're not fighting racism, you're employing racism. You're employing racism just of a different type, but of the same fundamental nature. That's the point. Yes. Thank you very much. So, so what right do you have, as someone that clearly benefited from white privilege, to, to talk about how America is not fundamentally racist? End quote. Next question. It's not my, it's, it's not my viewpoint. I just, I, I, I want to. I, I won't deign to answer that question. Okay. Next, next question. Um, I had a question. Uh, first of all, thank you so much. This talk was very, very interesting. Um, uh, in being, so if you're in a conversation with somebody who you uh, disagree with in fundamentals, uh, but you might agree on a certain issue, or say you're debating a certain issue with somebody who maybe shares a position, but they share it for the wrong reason. In order to be fully honest, must you, like, must you make sure that you make it clear that, that you, like, if you state that, like, oh, yeah, I'm, you know, with you, so, say you're talking to a leftist and, you're t and they're like, yeah, I support abortion, and you're like, I support abortion as well. Like, in order to be fully intellectually honest with that, would you say that you must, you know, make clear that, you are not advocating it for the same reasons, or else you're... Well, see, I, I don't think that's true. I don't think, it, no, ordinarily, if you're talking to a typical leftist or, or a liberal, and you say, I agree with you about abortion, you're, you are basically in agreement. He supports the right to abortion because he thinks it, it, the government can't violate the right of a woman to choose what to do with her body. Now, it's true, as I said earlier, he does not have the full philosophic explanation. He does have a full validation of rights. He's not an objectivist. But you don't have to be an objectivist to hold a, an essentially correct view, even if you can't fully um, explain the whole, the whole structure on which it rests. When you say, when, when uh, uh, take any, uh, uh, our president, Joe Biden, if he says, he is in favor of abortion rights. You can say, yes, I agree with that. I'm in favor of, I, I think you basically agree for the same reason. As opposed to, um, um, you know, as a communist party comes out and says, um, all women have a right to abortion because their bodies belong to the state and the state has to decide whether you have a child or not. So if the state says you, you can have an abortion, you can. And you say, well, okay, I agree. Then, then obviously there, there's a fundamental disagreement. The, the, that person does not believe you have a right to an abortion. The person is saying the government, you, ha you have to defer to the government and the government controls everything and the government will, will tell you you can't. So in those cases, it's important to make the distinction, but don't be dogmatic about the fact that when you're talking with anyone who's not an objectivist, there's going to be many things you disagree about, but that doesn't mean you can't agree on some things, even if he does not have the full philosophic structure to validate it. Again, the issue is, is there some consistent 
ideology or philosophy underlying his particular position with which you disagree, in which case you say so and dissociate yourself. If that's not the case, feel free to associate with him. Thank you. Uh, can I just make a, a quick um, acknowledgement here? I'm using this terrific stand for my talk, which took a long time to make, and it's, it's due to the talents of uh, Jeff Britting, who is uh, an, a multi-talented person, which I won't go into all his talents, but these are one of his lesser talents, but may, Jeff has made this talk possible. Thank you, Jeff. Go ahead. <clears throat> An, an online questioner asks how you would deal with those who genuinely believe that climate change will be the end of mankind? Oh, well, that's not hard. It depends. Is the person open to reason or not? Now, now there are many environmentalists, and I use environmentalism as an example of a fundamentally uh, flawed ideology, of an ideology that, that is fundamentally antithetical to... Uh, capitalism into objectivism. But there are many people who are very worried about um, global warming and they think that there's scientific evidence for it and every day they see newspaper headlines that say every single uh, flood or fire or hurricane or, or uh, increase in, in, in the incidence of common colds in some area are attributable to global warming. So he gets the idea, yeah, this is really a terrible thing. We have to do something about it. So if he's open to reason and you want to take the time, which would take a lot of time, you could talk to him. But if, if he's really an ardent environmentalist, by which I mean what I said in the talk, he is someone who believes that man is to be sacrificed for nature, that nature has an intrinsic value which you can't encroach upon, then you are fundamentally at odds. Now, you could talk to him if you want, but you can't ally with him because you're, you're, you're sanctioning his fundamental uh, wrong position. Yes. Thank you, first of all, for your excellent talk. You're welcome. Uh, I wanted to apply your approach to supporters of uh, COVID mandates and lockdowns. Uh, so people like Bill Gates and Anthony Fauci and Justine Trudeau, um, I think one shouldn't say that they are right, that um, proven cases should be isolated and that vaccines are good because I think they support these things for the same reason they support uh, isolating people who came in contact with uh, proven cases because they are spying on the phone and they know that they came in contact or people who came in contact with these people and mask mandating, curfews and lockdowns because they think that the government's role is to manage the public health and minimize um, collective illness numbers. And that uh, one what, should... What numbers? Collective uh, illness uh, numbers. And that uh, one shouldn't assess his own risk, but the government should decide uh, the action for individual and that, um, that liberty should be sacrificed for the common good. Yes. And so do you agree with that assessment? Yes, I think that's true. I think there are a lot of people, I don't know specifically what uh, you know, Bill Gates' motivation is or these others, but yes, there are people who openly state that uh, government is, needs to be in charge of everything pertaining to your health, so it has to tell you, you know, how, much, how many calories you're allowed to take in, whether you could eat uh, 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 fats, 
whether you should, too, whether you should avoid too much salt, whether uh, um, uh, stores should be allowed to sell sugared soda, all of that. Yes, there are views like that, and you should definitely state that you disagree with that. Uh, but if you're talking with someone um, about something that you agree on, uh, let's say um, you agree that if there's evidence that someone has a contagious disease, the government is entitled to prevent him from coming into contact with other people because their government is, is, is using force to prevent a violation of rights, you could say, I agree with that, but I don't agree that it's government's uh, domain to control people's health when there is no demonstrable evidence that someone poses a threat. You can make it clear. Uh, so I, I, don't, I don't see the problem. I, I, um, uh, does that answer your question? Yes, thank okay. you very much. Yes. I consider the ideas behind the Black Lives Matter movement and uh, the multiculturalists, social justice warriors, now they're being called woke. I mean, I consider them honestly some of the most obscene ideas that are in our culture right now. And I'm shocked and appalled at how they've taken over institutions and mm. the minds of people who should know better. Yes. And so my question is, is it time for an organized movement against it, maybe with some sort of manifesto like a screen guide for Americans that can unite institutions who can agree on that issue? Well, I, I don't know that you could actually form an ideological organization uh, based on opposition to the woke movement except for one, and we call that objectivism. So we have that. Now you're talking about a narrower focus, uh, writing pamphlets and articles specifically addressing the errors of these social justice warriors. Uh, I think what you should do is, 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 is write or speak against it. I don't know what kind of organization, you want an anti-woke organization. That is not good. It has to be something positive that they stand for and what they would stand for broadly would be objectivism and narrowly would be something pertaining to a particular issue. So for example, you have anti-racists against Black Lives Matter. You know, if you want to form an organization like that and to focus on racism and to show how Black Lives Matter actually promotes and endorses racism, that would be fine. You could do that. But one umbrella movement to encompass all the ills of the left? No. Last question, I think, right? Is that right? Mm -hmm. Okay, you, you tell um, me then. You mentioned that many ideological movements package the right principle with the wrong principle, and yet today, many ideological movements refuse to even cite any kind of absurd principle. Instead, they reduce their views to the recognition of some um, concrete and widely recognized problems such as pollution, crime, COVID, or police brutality, brutality with opponents yeah. of the proposed solution labeled as... I get the question. Yeah, exactly right. And that is why I, I, I stressed that the way to find out what fundamentally underlies some viewpoint is not by asking the, the, the advocates, what's your fundamental? It's by looking at their actual the positions they advocate, and asking yourself what idea is in common 
among them. So you take, you know, a dozen uh, concrete positions that they endorse and say, is there some one unifying idea? Whether they acknowledge it or not doesn't matter. This is what they're advocating and you can infer this is their fundamental. So with environmentalism, very few environmentalists, though some do, but very few will come out and say, yes, we believe in sacrificing man for bugs. Very few will say that. But if you look at their actual positions, that, the, the idea of sacrificing man to nature is the unifying idea underlying them. Okay? So we have one more? Thank you. Do we have one more or not? Okay, one more. Thank you. Do you have any practical advice on how to introduce a discussion of fundamentals into a conversation? I find that oftentimes people I talk with get bogged down in concrete, 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 concrete. Um, yeah, I, I think the best way to do it would be to get them to infer the need to identify a fundamental. So if you talk to them and you say, okay, look, you've got four or five positions you're advocating. Is there one common reason that you're advocating this? Or do you have five different reasons unrelated to each other, in which case, how do you know what your position is? There, you'll find that if, you, if, you, if they're honest now, if they're open to reason, they'll, they'll see, yeah, there is something in common. There's, there's a reason that I've chosen to uh, endorse these five positions. And you work a little bit, you'll see, well, here's this one common broadest reason that, is, that exists in all of them. That's the fundamental. Okay? Thank you. Okay, thank you very much, ladies and gentlemen. Thanks for listening to the Ayn Rand Institute Live podcast. Subscribe on iTunes, Stitcher, or wherever you listen. You can also find us on YouTube. If you like this content, please share or leave us a review. For more information, go to aynrand.org.